following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. If you open your Bible somewhere in the middle, you're probably in or near the Psalms. Just keep going forward until you run into Jeremiah there. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 3. Before we begin, let's pray and ask God for his help this morning in our study of his word. Father, we give this time now as we have to you, O God. We have read your word, we have prayed your word, and we have sung your word. Now, God, let us hear your word as it is preached to our hearts and to our minds and to our ears, that we may be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. Would you, God, by your Spirit, illuminate our minds to the truth of your Word and open our hearts to the needed correction that it comes with, the comfort that you bring through it. And by your spirit, God, lead us into obedience according to it. We pray for those who are sick. I think specifically of Kendrick and Taylor. I pray that they would be rested and encouraged that when able to gather with us would be known and felt and loved all the same. We pray for those who are not here because of sin or neglect. Would you in your mercy and in your grace confront them where they're at and draw them again to yourself, restore them again to the fellowship of your body, convict them of their sin, and may they come to know the truth and the joy of their salvation. And we pray for our times, God, for the children, for the workers, and for all of us here to be led in truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been told once that the service at Foundation, and my preaching particularly, can at times be a bit somber. And this was not meant as a, a rebuke or a critique in a harsh way but simply an acknowledgement that at times the more dominant note in my sermons and the more dominant note in our services tends to lean towards emphasizing our sin and our corruption of heart and mind. It tends to regularly remind ourselves of the fallen shortedness of our own lives against the standard of God's righteous and holy word. And this has the effect of lowering the countenance of those who are under such a weight of conviction. Well, this may be, of course, true at times, and some of it is intentional, I might add. And yet we need to remind ourselves regularly that repentance, conviction of sin, is absolutely vital to the message of the gospel if we're to understand it rightly. If we remove the acknowledgement of the sinfulness of the human condition, we also remove the need for grace and mercy from that condition. So this morning's sermon will be one of those heavy-handed sermons about repentance. And Jeremiah uses pretty strong language. If you're uncomfortable or sensitive to language about unfaithfulness, about God's wrath and judgment, consider this your trigger warning. Jeremiah 3 is not a comfortable chapter to read in your family devotions, as you'll see in just a moment. But this is the word of the Lord. 
And so we make our way through God's word. And we'll focus this morning on the theme of repentance, God's wrath, and how we might avoid it. We're going to look in Jeremiah 3, really into the first part of chapter 4, and we're going to divide the text into three portions. First portion is Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 11. And this we can call a husband's confrontation. In Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 11, a husband's confrontation. The second portion is Jeremiah 3, verse 12, through to the end and into chapter 4, verse 2, with a chunk taken out of the middle. That second section, focusing on repentance, is what we can call a father's exhortation. So a husband's confrontation in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, and a father's exhortation in verse 12 through chapter 3 to verse 2 of chapter 4. And then lastly, we take that middle part of chapter 3 and the end of the first four verses of chapter 4 to the last section, a people's exaltation. Now, if you didn't write that down or remember it, don't worry, I'll remind you along the way as we get there. But our three headings this morning of husband's confrontation, a father's exhortation, and a people's exaltation. Let's look first at the first 11 verses in chapter 3. Recall where we are so far in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 1 was an introduction, the origin story, as it were, of Jeremiah, who was called by the Lord, set apart for the preaching and the prophesying of the gospel and of God's judgment to the Gentiles, as well as particularly to Judah, the southern tribe. Now, a bit of Israelite history. A hundred years before Jeremiah's writing, the northern ten tribes of Israel have already fallen into captivity under Assyria. And that remains just Judah, the southern tribe, now stuck between the captive Israel under the Assyrian rule and a growing force of the Egyptian rule below them, as well as a growing national threat from the Babylonians coming there from the north as well. Now, the Assyrian army began to weaken because of their own fall in their capital of Nineveh, and so Babylon and Egypt now begin to vie for this position of strength, and little Judah will not stand a chance. So there's some political movements happening, and some people in Judah decide to align themselves with Egypt, while others try to hedge their bets by cozying up to the Babylonians. But Jeremiah comes into the midst of these political turmoil and says, your hope will not be in aligning yourself against one superpower in favor of another or vice versa, but your hope, your only hope from judgment and threat of the north or from the south will be to restore yourself to the Lord. Israel had fallen into captivity because of their sin, remember. This is in the second part of Kings. They were rebellious and idolatrous and they worshipped false gods and they sought after the pagan gods and worshipped like the pagan nations around them and so God gave them over to that false worship and idolatry and they fell into captivity under the Assyrians. Now Judah, though they were spared from this initial judgment, were not far behind. They too were rebelling against God's word and authority. In fact, so far that they had actually forgotten and misplaced God's word. The worship of God according to his commands had been left in exchange for the worship of false idols. And it wasn't until King Josiah, one of the last good kings of Israel, who had rediscovered a copy of the law there in the temple and began a series of reforms in Judah. And with this reform became a bit of revival and yet even these reforms and this revival was not enough to truly turn Judah's heart back to the Lord. And Jeremiah was risen up as a prophet to speak to Judah, at times to the nations, about the impending judgment that awaits them if they continue in their idolatry and in their sin. And in chapter 2 was the beginning of that warning. And the word came to Jeremiah to say to Judah, that they had forsaken the covenant that God had made with them, and that they were in grave danger through their ignorance 
in their hypocrisy of incurring the same kind of judgment and wrath that Israel themselves had incurred at God's hand. In fact, there was indictments after indictments leveled against Judah so that they might heed that warning and turn from their wickedness. They had a false pretense of worship. They praised God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. So in chapter 3 of Jeremiah, really, is just the continuation of that warning and this confrontation. So turn to verse 1 in chapter 3 and notice how God continues through Jeremiah to speak, warn, and confront. It's just that God says if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her, that is, the first husband? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and you would return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have been set awaiting lovers. Like an Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. And yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will you be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And yet her teacher, treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery, with stone and tree. And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with their whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Such strong language from the prophet. Some of you may have some explaining to do on the car ride home. May God's grace be with you. Chapter 3 is written to underscore just how serious God is taking Judah's sin. This isn't something he wishes to simply correct and move on. This isn't an error on a math page. This is sin. This is idolatry. The analogy he uses here is the unfaithfulness of a bride to her husband. But not simply infidelity, but the forsaking of the covenant union in the prostituting of themselves out to other gods. This isn't simply God whose feelings are hurt, but a holy and righteous Husband whose covenant has been profaned by false idols. Jeremiah frames the problem here by recalling the law from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And there the law was given to Israel that was primarily meant to protect the wife who was sent away by her husband, meaning divorced by her husband, to not be traded and moved around like a property. It was to protect the woman. But here, God recalls this law and says that the husband himself, the original first husband, cannot take this, the wife back after she has given herself to another man in marriage. We're to understand the argument that if God were to send Judah away, 
that is to divorce her as a husband would divorce a wife, her own defilement, or as the words here, her own pollution, which is actually stronger than defilement in Deuteronomy 24. Her own defilement at the hands of these false gods and these idols seriously threatens any chances of his taking her back. So the argument would go like this. If a twice-divorced woman is prohibited by the Mosaic law from returning to her original husband, how much less can Israel return to Yahweh when she has prostituted herself out to her many lovers in the Canaanite pantheon of false gods? The answer, of course, is that she cannot. Once she gives herself away and has been sent by her husband, he cannot take her back. It's a matter of righteousness, of purity. Verses 2 through 5 document and just confirm Judah's adultery in this case. Look in verse 2. Notice what she does. It says that she has sought other lovers. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. This is a reference to the hills on which they would offer sacrifices to Baal. By the wayside you have set awaiting lovers and polluted the land in your prostitution. Part of Israel's sin is that they have sought other lovers instead of comfort in the love of God. More than this, in verse 3, we see that their sin and their idolatry was one of unashamed obstinance against the Lord. Even though the showers had been withheld and the spring rain had not come, they continued in their idolatry and adulterous relationships. It says that you have the forehead of a whore and refuse to be ashamed. That is, they were determined to continue to give themselves away to these false lovers and idols, despite the fact that God in his grace was warning them by withholding blessing upon the land. And they were unashamed in their idolatry. They became obstinate and hard-hearted. So not only would they seek to lie in the bed of other lovers, they were indulgent and happy to do so. Again, beyond this, in verses 4 through 5, their sin was one of hypocrisy. And ultimately would be tone deaf to what God was calling them to repent of. Have you not just now called me, he says. You, you said, my father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? But this was completely tone deaf to the sin and the situation which they found themselves. It says, behold, you have spoken this, but you've done all the evil that you could. They were hypocritical. They wanted the blessing of the relationship with God through covenant without the love, the obedience, and the fidelity that the commandment is required. But friends, how often do we call out to God, our Father, in the midst of the own trouble that we've created? We're oblivious often to the warnings and the lessons that he's teaching us because of our own sin and idolatrous tendencies. And we cry out to the Lord, will he be angry forever? Is he going to continue to make life difficult for me? Completely oblivious to the fact that our sin has brought us to this place. Our sin has caused God's hand of discipline to rest on our lives. So caught up and blinded by our own sinful foolishness that we become completely aware of how much we have really messed things up. So he called the Lord through hypocritical mouths. And he goes on again in verse 6. And this underscores the seriousness of the situation. For if it happened to Israel, it will happen to Judah. Judah is following in the footsteps of her sister Israel. Look in verse 8. She saw, but she too went. She knew what Israel was doing. She knew that the other tribes were following after idolatry. 
and these false worship. She followed her sister to the altars of Baal. And she saw what happened to Israel. And yet she too went, it says. And they would worship God only out of pretense, but their hearts were given to the worship of false gods. The pretense of Judah's action here makes, of course, matters much worse. In verse 11, it says that faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. What does this mean? It means that because Judah saw and knows and yet continued in their idolatry, all the more is she guilty of persisting in sin. She's like the younger sibling who feigns obedience to her parents while in reality she is far more rebellious than her other siblings. Therefore, her sin is all the more serious to God. Friends, we've been given many graces and mercy. And part of the graces and mercies we've received is the observation of others who fall under the hand of discipline of the Lord that we might learn. Let us not turn a blind eye to the discipline of others, lest we too come under the same hand of discipline. Or worse, let us not ignore the discipline of others. In fact, consider it a worthy cost to pay so that we can indulge our flesh or our sin. It is a terrible place to be under the discipline and wrath of God. So Judah's rebellious and idolatrous and adulterous heart here has provoked God's wrath and his anger and his judgment. And so here he's confronting her as a husband would to warn her of the danger of going too far and ending up without a way back. Once the issue of divorce has been given and she is fully given over to these other lovers, God's own righteousness and justice does not permit him to take her back. There is a red line that they may cross. Two things we should understand then just from these first verses. One, man's sin is great. It is great. You and I are totally depraved. Our hearts desire to worship false gods, chief among them ourselves. This is not to say that man does not do good or is not capable of any good, but that no man is good. Romans tells us all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who is good, no, not one. There is none who seek God, but each one has gone on his own way like a sheep who has strayed. Man's sin is great. Sin is not just the breaking of a law. It is a rebellion against the lawmaker. It is a devaluation of God's character and devaluation of his word as not worthy to be obeyed. It is a repudiation of his goodness, of his kindness, of his grace. It is a rejection of the creature against the creator. Man's sin is great. And the second thing to understand then is that God's anger is just. God's anger is just. If a righteous God was not angry at our sin, he would not be righteous. If he were willing to overlook such rebellion, he would not be a righteous and good king. God's anger against idolatry is absolutely fitting to his character and is just. Now, you and I may feel slighted at times when people choose somebody else over us, whether in a relationship or passed over for a promotion or picked last on the field playground. But for God, this isn't simply about his own self-confidence. This isn't 
the bruising of his ego. God is alone worthy of our praise and worship. And it is completely harmful to ourselves not to worship him. He's not an egomaniac wanting us to praise him and stroke his ego. But knowing that we are the best possible thing, he is the best possible thing for us, anything that falls short and chosen over him justly angers him. Well, if man's sin is great and God's anger is just, that is a recipe, friends, for disaster for you and I. Because God's anger at our sin comes down to us. It is, of course, our sin and no one else's. God, though sovereign, is not the author of sin and is not culpable for our sin, which we willfully commit against him. His anger, righteous and just anger, now sits, as one Puritan would put it, like an arrow and a bow pulled back and aimed at your heart. Man's sin is great, but God's anger is just. This leads us to our second section of a father's exhortation. This begins with verse 12 of chapter 3 through verse 13. And then again in verse 19 through the end of that chapter. Notice what he says. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words to the north. And say, this is to Israel, return, O faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. Only acknowledge, or I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree. And that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. O faithless children, return declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. When you have multiplied and fruitful in the land in those days, declare the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind and be remembered amiss. It shall not be made again. For at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. And together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. This forms sort of a parable of sorts about Israel so that Judah may heed this word. This parable is that Judah would listen to and heed the warning and the instruction. See, the parable, remember, touches on Judah's ignorant complaint earlier in verse 5. Will you be angry forever? Will you always be indignant to the end? Well, here, through this parable, God gives a clear answer to that question, revealing, of course, the true nature of his heart towards his wayward people. He says in verse 12, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. This is such good and precious news. That though man's sin is great and God's anger is just, his mercy is more. God gives a clear answer to all those who cry out in real contrition. Will he be angry forever? It is no, for I am merciful. Well, how is this possible? How is God's anger turned away from Israel? The answer is through repentance. And this is his exhortation to his people to repent of their sins. Now, repentance is a word we use a lot at church. It's a word that means turning away from sin. It is a changing of direction, away from sin and toward God. In fact, this verbiage is used three times in this chapter. Turn, return from to me. This idea of forsaking sin and embracing Christ. 
Now, this is both to those who are not Christians and those who are Christians. The work of repentance is not a single act in the beginning of your conversion, but an ongoing, often daily, if not hourly, activity Christians are to be engaged in. You may be familiar with Martin Luther, who in 1517 nailed 95 theses to the door of the Castle of Wittenberg to kind of lodge a formal, if not academic, complaint against the church. He wanted to correct some things. First of which was that when our Lord Jesus says to repent, he intended that to be a lifelong duty for the Christian. What he understood is that repentance is central to the Christian life. It happens, of course, first and savingly when the Spirit moves, opens your eyes to your sin, and causes you to have a have a desire to love and serve God in a way that you never could or had before and turn from your sin to him. But then this process is repeated over and over and over again in the Christian life. And so we must be rep repentant people, marked by repentance. And so biblical repentance is a turning away from sin to God. But what does that look like? I think from our text we can arrive of at least four expressions of biblical repentance. First, notice in verse 13, in order to repent, they must first acknowledge and confess their sins, it says. I will not be angry forever. Return to me, verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against me and have scattered your favors among the foreigners and that you have not obeyed my voice. Repentance means acknowledging and confessing your sins, which, by the way, is why we confess our sins together every time we gather. We need to be reminded that we are sinners. We particularly acknowledge and confess our sin as rebellion. Our sin is an act of rebellion because God is king. To him we must give our allegiance and submission and obedience, and yet in sin we rebel against him and cast off his authority. Brothers and sisters, when you seek to repent of your sins, always begin with an acknowledgement that it is against God. You have sinned, you are king. But secondly, we can learn here in the acknowledging and the confessing of our sins that we are to be specific. It is not simply to, uh, enough to acknowledge that we are sinners and that we have sinned, but to specify the ways in which we have rebelled against God. Acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord and have scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. When you repent, acknowledge your fallenness before the Lord and your rebellion but also admit and confess ways in which you have not obeyed God's word. As you're reading the Bible, perhaps in the morning, and you come across a command, acknowledge that you have fallen short at times of that command and confess that sin to the Lord. Use the scripture to guide you in your repentance. So the first expression of biblical repentance is to acknowledge and confess. The second expression of biblical repentance here in verse 21, is to possess godly sorrow and contrition, that is brokenness for your sin. Paul also will talk about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply being sorry for the effects and the consequences of your sin with little regard to how actually it affects God. You are not sorry for sin's sake, but sorry for your own sake. That's worldly repentance and worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow is a brokenness or a contrition over your sin. That the God whom you love and who loves you has been rebelled against through your action. It says in verse 21, chapter 3, A voice on the bare heights is heard and the weeping and the pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. If you are confessing sin, 
and you do not feel even a small amount of sorrow and brokenness over that sin, it is not true repentance. Now, you may be here now. Even in our own confession this morning, you may have simply listened to Josh but felt no real sorrow for your sin. My guess is probably because you're either distracted or you have failed to understand the magnitude of sin against a holy God. More of that in just a moment. So we must acknowledge and confess sin and possess godly sorrow and brokenness over sin. Thirdly, the biblical repentance means that we must repudiate and forsake sin. That is an active turning from and killing the root of sin in our lives as we turn to God. He says in verse 23, Truly the hills are a delusion, it says. The orgies on the mountains, truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Remove the detestable things from my presence and do not waver, says the Lord. There needs to be a repudiation of the former sins of your life and of your youth if you are to truly walk in humble repentance before God. You can be broken for sin and make no commitment to change. Lastly, biblical repentance means we possess humility. In verse 25 again of chapter 3, they lament, let us lie down in our shame. And let, us, let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord, against our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of our God. Notice this humility after the realization of their rebellion against God and of God's real wrath against sin, there is no other recourse except to humble yourself before God. That is, when we repent, we must realize truly what our sins deserve. God's just wrath and condemnation. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That is, that's what we deserve. And of course, justice demands a payment. Death must be given. God's anger won't simply be abated just because his people repent and say, I'm sorry, no matter how genuinely broken they are. Rather, God's anger, if it is to be just and righteous, needs to be satisfied. It is to be redirected to another object of God's wrath, if not us. Well, under the old covenant, God's provision of the sacrificial system was just that. This was the mechanism of redirecting God's wrath against the sin of his people onto a sacrifice, onto a lamb who would atone for the sin of the lamb once a year and sacrifices day in and day out. But this was a provisional mechanism, but not a permanent one. See, God was simply buying time till he would put in place a permanent sacrificial system. Jesus would be the lamb. He would be, as we learned last week from 1 John, the propitiation for our sins. That is, the atoning sacrifice for his people. It would be Jesus who once and for all offered himself as a sacrifice. It would be God who sends his son to suffer the wrath of our sin, yours and mine, so that those who are united to Christ by faith receives the forgiveness. And those who repent of sin have them, their sins covered by the blood of Jesus. And so the call to turn away from your rebellion and idolatry, friends, is as clear now as it was then. And the offer for Israel to return to the Lord, to their gracious and tender Father, is not a what-if question for you and I like it only would have been for Israel and eventually for Judah, who would not return. We may still repent, or as the psalmist says, 
find the Lord while he still may be found. This isn't a what-if hypothetical question for you and I. If you repent of your sins and place your hope and trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you cast yourself upon the mercy of God because without his help and hope you are completely condemned, the what-if scenario Israel and Judah would experience becomes a reality for you. Ultimately, the fruit of that repentance leads us to our third and final section, that of restoration. And this is a people's exaltation. The fruit of repentance always leads to restoration. Jeremiah's focus is is not here just the, the immediate blessings of returning to the Lord, though there are many, but to the future blessing that awaits the restored community of God's people, what he calls Zion. Look again in verse 14. Return, O faithless children, because of the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from the city, two from family, bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You'll be multiplied and fruitful in the land, declares the Lord. No more will you say to the Ark of the Covenant, no more will it come to mind and be remembered and missed. It won't be made again. Why? For at that time shall be the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. They shall join together and come from the land of the north to the land that he gave to their fathers. This is Zion. Now in the Bible, Zion is a theological center and focus of God's restored and triumphant kingdom. The community that he builds, triumphant over sin, united to him as king. And in such a kingdom, the leaders, for instance, in verse 15, will be people who are zealous for the glory of God. The reason that Judah and Israel are in the mess they are is because their leaders had forsaken the word and led them into sin and idolatry. But in Zion, in this new kingdom, the leaders will be those who are zealous for the glory of God, men after God's own heart. And they will lead and guide and nourish the people of God with godly wisdom and with understanding. And in this kingdom of Zion, there will be great blessing and multiplication of God's people in his kingdom spread throughout the earth. It will be a people united in their allegiance and affection to God of all nations beyond just the borders of Israel. Ultimately, this promise of restoration is the same promise that God makes through Jeremiah later in chapter 31, this promise of a new covenant. And that promise of that new covenant is ultimately realized and fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Or in other words, the picture here of this future kingdom of restoration and the picture of exaltation of this people that's painted here in Jeremiah has come to life. And you and I, friends, are living in those days right now. For Jeremiah, it was a prophecy of what is to come. The new covenant was a promise yet unfulfilled. But in the coming of Christ and in the death of Christ, the new covenant is established. In fact, we remind ourselves of that reality every time we take the Lord's Supper together. When he says that this cup is the what? The new covenant in my blood. So upon the coming of Jesus, his death, and the ultimately the resurrection of Christ, and his ascension to the Father, we have a new and better covenant established, a people, a city, Zion, on earth, which in itself is even a shadow of the one to come in the new Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Revelation. We're living in the days that Jeremiah prophesied now. We are living, friends, who are united to Christ. The church is this repentant, restored and rejoicing community that's been established in the death of Christ. And this community has been granted to all those who would, by faith, repent and be restored to God through the blood of Jesus. Regardless of your background, your ethnicity, your race, your language, we are united to Christ and united to God through Christ 
and we come to the blessing of the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And so you have been granted access into this community in which we may live and walk in even now. But how? How has this access been granted to us and how do we continue to live in the reality of this now and not yet kingdom of God? Look at the last two verses there, chapter four, verses three and four. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with no one to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. How are we restored to God? How are you and I made to partake in this community of restored and repentant kingdom citizens? It is in the breaking up of the fallowed ground of our hearts. That is, the hardened and unplowed, untilled and untended to soil of our hearts in which weeds and thorns have overtaken. We are called to break up that in our hearts. That soil must be broken up and tilled and the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death and his resurrection must be planted deeply into the soil of our hearts by God's grace. It must be tended to there and grown there so that it may flourish into real, genuine, godly repentance and salvation. And this would not be a work done by our own hands, but it is a work done on the heart by God himself. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and to remove the foreskin of your hearts. This isn't an outward expression of obedience to God, but a completely holistic giving of yourself to the Lord in repentance and in restoration. This is the work of that repentance. So the call of Jeremiah to us today is, is simply this. Repent, return, and be restored. Repent, Return and be restored. For you, even you, hardened sinner, can experience God's tender mercy and his love and not his anger or his wrath. In Christ, your sins can be forgiven and your hope can be renewed. In Christ, you will not be cursed but will be blessed. In Christ, God will no longer be against you but will be powerfully and deeply, graciously for you. In fact, we should end here on Hosea's similar words. Hosea 10, 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Friends, if you have not repented of your sins, this is your moment and your calling to do so. In fact, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to do that. And so if you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to just ask you, if you're feeling like the Lord may be convicting you in your own heart, maybe as you've heard me preach, you've listened and read the words of Jeremiah this morning, that particular sins have come to your mind that you have not repented of, that you've been holding on to an outward religion, you've been coming to church, you've been professing faith, but you've never fully given yourself in repentance to God. I want to give you the chance now to just simply ask God for help and mercy and repentance. And I want to be able to help you, me and the other elders here to pray with you. And so if you're, you're, your heads are bowed and you'd like prayer later this morning, would you please just raise a hand? so that I can pray with you. If you've not repented of sin before and would like to know what it means to repent. And Father, we ask God that you would 
move in, in this church in such a way that we are not obstinate, idolatrous sinners who are Christians in name only, but genuinely repentant believers who have cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. Like we, like the tax collector, would come and beat our chest and simply cry out to have mercy on us, a sinner, that we may walk away justified. God, we ask that you would so move in our heart that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would see it, acknowledge it, and confess it for what it is, rebellion and idolatry. Even the small sins of our lives, our pet sins that we so easily tolerate may be recognized for the rebellion against the holy and righteous king. May we not simply acknowledge and confess, but may we also repudiate those sins and forsake that. May we give ourselves to the work of the mortification of sin, the killing of sin, and of the trusting and the working of the spirit in our lives and the growth and the nourishment of our faith in him who has given himself for us. For he has established a new covenant by his blood that we may celebrate and partake in the blessings that you offer through repentance and the restoration now and in the life to come. We thank you for this picture of heaven and for Zion. And we look forward to the day where we eat and celebrate together with all of God's people around the throne of God. For now, God, we pray that you would continue by your grace and mercy, convict us of sin, call us to yourself, draw us to repentance, and restore us to the joy of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Children and so